This podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, who makes it easy and fun to simply step outside. That might mean breaking a speed record in a rugged, built-for-fun sonic snow tube, walking an extra block in a warm, weather-resistant down jacket, or just taking a breath on your doorstep before cozying up in a quilted sweatshirt. For however you experience the outdoors, shop clothing and gear at llbean.com. Be an outsider. I'm Jason Epperson, and it's time for the latest in National Park news. Rising along the Tennessee-North Carolina border in the southeastern United States, Great Smoky Mountains National Park was established in 1934. And with over 14 million visits in 2021, it's the most visited of the 63 national parks in the United States, by far. For comparison's sake, Zion came in second last year, with only 5 million visitors. The name Smoky comes from the natural fog that often hangs over the range and presents as large smoke plumes from a distance. This fog isn't weather. It's caused by the vegetation emitting volatile organic compounds, chemicals that form vapors at normal temperature and pressure. The creation of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park proved much more complex than its predecessors, such as Yellowstone and Yosemite, which were on land that was already federally owned. Along with convincing logging firms to sell lucrative lumber rights, the Park Commission in the Smokies had to negotiate the purchase of thousands of small farms and remove entire communities. The commission also had to deal with the Tennessee and North Carolina legislatures, which at times were opposed to spending taxpayer money on park efforts. In spite of these difficulties, the Park Commission had completed most major land purchases by 1932, and the National Park officially opened in 1934 with President Franklin D. Roosevelt presiding over the opening ceremony at Newfound Gap. Entrance to the park has always been free. There's been a rumor floating around for a long time that the park's enabling legislation prevents the park from charging an entrance fee as sort of a compromise between the two states and the federal government, but it's just not true. Why then don't they charge an entrance fee at the busiest park in the nation? Well, it boils down to a few historic legal actions. In 1951, the state of Tennessee transferred Newfound Gap Road and Little River Road to the park. That deed transfer contained a restriction, preventing tolls on either road. Before the creation of the interstate highway system, these were the main roads between Tennessee and North Carolina, and the state likely included this restriction to ensure access to free interstate travel. A federal law prevents the National Park Service from charging entrance fees where tolls are prohibited on primary park roads. Because Newfound Gap Road and Little River Road are the primary roads in Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the park is, to this day, unable to charge an entrance fee. But the dramatic increase in visitation has taken a toll on the park, especially with little increase in funding. A decade ago, the park brought in about 5 million visitors each year, only a little more than a third of what it brings in now. But park managers think they have finally found a way to charge a fee that will bring in some more revenue and may help alleviate some of the major parking problems that persist at popular trailheads all over the park. Great Smoky Mountains National Park is seeking public input on proposed fee program changes for 2023, 
including a new park-wide parking fee, along with an increase to existing fee rates at front country and back country campsites, picnic pavilions, and day-use cabin rentals. All revenue generated through these user fees will remain in the Smokies to directly support operational costs for managing and improving services for visitors, including trail maintenance, custodial services, trash removal, and supporting more law enforcement staffing across the park. Essentially, you'll be able to enter the park for free, but you'll have to pay for parking. The proposed Smokies Parking Tag Program would create what the park says will be a sustainable revenue source to address long-standing challenges associated with high use, year-round operational needs, and resource protection. The park is proposing a daily parking tag for $5, a parking tag for up to seven days for $15, and an annual parking tag for $40. The proposed rates and tag duration were determined by considering a comparison of rates for similar access on private and public lands nearby. The Smokies parking tag would be required to be displayed on all motor vehicles parking in designated parking spots within park boundaries, but the tag would not guarantee a parking spot at a specific location. Parking would continue to be available on a first-come, first-served basis. Unofficial roadside parking, which is very commonly used all over the park, would be eliminated to help improve motorist and pedestrian safety and improve traffic flow through congested areas. The parking tags would not be required for motorists experiencing the park through a scenic drive or using park roads as a commuter route, nor would they be required for pedestrians or cyclists. But here's the big catch. They also wouldn't be free or discounted for annual America the Beautiful Public Lands pass holders, nor for senior or access pass holders. It circumvents the entire National Park Pass system. The park also plans to increase backcountry camping fees from $4 per night to $8 per night, with a maximum of $40 per camper. These fees have not been increased in 10 years, while the use of sites has increased to more than 100,000 camper nights per year. Front country campsites will jump to $30 per night for primitive sites and $36 per night for sites with electric hookups. Rates are currently varied across campgrounds, ranging from $17.50 to $25 per night. Public comment on the proposed Smokies parking tag, camping fee, and day-use facility rate changes is open through May 11th. Comments can be submitted via a link we'll provide in the description for this episode. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick break for a message from our favorite place to search for the best campground for your national park adventures, Campendium. Campendium lists virtually every campground in North America and every type of campsite you can imagine. From remote backcountry tent sites to RV parks with water slides and pickleball courts, you can search by price, including free or by cell service, elevation, whether pets are allowed. Dozens of different search filters will bring you detailed user reviews so you can find the best campsite for your trip. Campendium is free at campendium.com or on the app, and you can upgrade to a RoadPass Pro membership to unlock an ad-free experience with more detailed cell service reports, public land map overlays, trail maps, and more. A RoadPass Pro membership also includes other premium apps like Togo RV and Road Trippers. Visit campendium.com or download the app today and save $10 off a RoadPass Pro membership with code RVMILES10X. Two of the last few National Park Service COVID closures have ended, 
Philadelphia's Edgar Allan Poe National Historic Site, and the Thaddeus Kosciuszko National Memorial opened last weekend. When Independence National Historical Park reopened most buildings in 2020 and 2021, these two sites remained closed due to their limited space and exhibit layouts, which were challenging for social distancing. At 0.2 acres, the Thaddeus Kosciuszko home is the smallest unit in the national park system, honoring a Polish general and military engineer who served with the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War, designing successful fortifications at Saratoga and West Point. After the war, he fought for Polish independence from Russia when he was wounded and exiled from his home country. He returned to the United States a hero and stayed in Philadelphia as he recovered from his wounds. The National Park Service is asking visitors to take caution and not to approach wild rabbits. Rabbit hemorrhagic disease, RHDV2, was recently detected in wild cottontail rabbits and jackrabbits in the southwestern United States. RHDV2 is a highly contagious and lethal viral disease among domestic and wild rabbits, but it does not affect people or other domestic animals. However, multiple dead or sick rabbits can also be a sign of tularemia or plague. The Park Service is warning people not to approach or handle sick or dead wildlife and to keep pets away from them. Congress has passed a bill that will expand the Brown v. Board of Education National Historic Site in Kansas, honoring the U.S. Supreme Court ruling overturning school segregation. Other National Park Service sites in other states will commemorate their roles in desegregation once the bill is signed by President Biden. Congress designated the site in Topeka, Kansas in 1992 to honor Linda Brown, the first named plaintiff in the combined Brown v. Board of Education case, and her family. But the Supreme Court's ruling was also the result of four other suits, and there's no Park Service site to recognize the other cases in Virginia, Delaware, South Carolina, and the District of Columbia. The Brown v. Board of Education National Historic Site will become the Brown v. Board of Education National Historical Park under the legislation. Finally, the Gateway Arch in St. Louis's Gateway Arch National Park is going dark, but for a good reason. The National Park Service will not illuminate the arch at night from May 1st to May 14th due to the spring bird migration season. Every spring and fall, rangers turn off the Gateway Arch's exterior lights for two weeks during the peak of migration through the St. Louis area in an effort to minimize the possible disorienting effect that the lights may have on birds that migrate at night. Outdoor light at night can be particularly harmful for migrating birds. Each year, billions of wild birds migrate at night, and light pollution causes collisions with buildings and interferes with their ability to endure long distances. According to the National Park Service, 40% of the nation's migratory waterfowl use the Mississippi River Corridor during their spring and fall migration. That's it for this month's National Park News. If you're new here, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you next time.